You're listening to the Truth About Bible Study taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. This morning, we're going to be into an exciting topic, I think. We're going to be moving from refugees to the most natural next place to go, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah, you absolutely. You saw it from a mile away. So the truth is, I was, I'm going to be speaking for a few weeks on the gifts of the Spirit. I think that's something that we haven't covered in a long, long time at our church, and something that's very interesting, uh, something that's important for us as believers to understand. And so we are going to get into gifts of the Spirit, but I really believe, as I started thinking about teaching about the gifts of the Spirit, that if we didn't cover what the Holy Spirit was first, we were kind of getting the cart before the horse. We were starting with... Uh, um, diving into a topic where there's a lot of introduction necessary. There's a lot of understanding about the Holy Spirit himself next necessary first. And so I think in the realm of theology, the Holy Spirit ranks as one of the most misunderstood topics. And the truth is, as of late at least, it's not for lack of trying. Prior to the 1960s, if you were to go into, you were to look at Christian books as a whole. I know that there's way, way, way more being published now than there was in 1960, but even percentage-wise, per capita, the number of books that we've written dedicated to the Holy Spirit was extremely small compared to what it is now. And it's just been in the last 50 years or so that there's been a lot more focus put on the Holy Spirit. But with all of this focus on the Holy Spirit, we still have so much confusion and misunderstanding of what his role is in the believer's life. And so I think it's important for us to begin speaking about the Holy Spirit before we jump into the gifts of the Spirit. And one of the things I want to do is I want to trace what the Holy Spirit did in the Old Testament and spend probably more time in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, to look at what the Spirit did throughout the ages and and throughout time and then what he's going to be doing in the church. And I think that might help us because when we understand what the Holy Spirit has always done, it hopefully will help us understand what we should expect him to continue doing now. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the lesson this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity we have today to study your word, to study this Holy Spirit. And Lord, I know that you've given us your spirit, and there's nothing that helps us more in our life than the indwelling power of the spirit. Um, And yet, it he is something that we often misunderstand and we um, don't think a lot about. And Lord, I pray that this morning you would help as we study your word just to clarify some of those those things in our mind, help us to um, gain a better understanding of what the Holy Spirit has done and what he is doing, um, both in the world and in our own lives. I pray you'd help us this morning to understand and, and apply these things to our life. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit has done throughout the the ages, beginning all the way back at Genesis chapter 1, verse number 2. We have what the Holy Spirit did in creation. Um, He is involved in the creation and the formation of matter. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. 
When we think about creation, oftentimes we think, okay, well, God obviously created all things, and we just assume that means God the Father created all things. But then we go to the book of Colossians, and we see, no, it was actually Christ that created all things. And, and oftentimes when we think about creation, we leave the Holy Spirit out of that whole deal. But what's interesting here is the Spirit is immediately mentioned that he was moving upon the face of the waters. He was involved in the creation of matter. He's involved in the formation of the land and, and all of those things the Spirit is involved in. We even find that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God is involved in the decision to make mankind in the image of God. So Genesis 1, 26, we said, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, there, there are many different scholars that will debate exactly what's going on there. Um, the us, obviously, is something that includes a group of people, and so it's not just let, I'm going to make man in my image. And so the, I think the vast majority of conservative scholars would say the us is referring to the Trinity. Now, there's some people who like to say, well, no, deities often referred to themselves as us just because it was a, a, a more cool thing to do back then. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think God's really concerned about those things. I think that here it's the Trinity making the decision to make man in their image. And so the Holy Spirit is involved in that. And then in Job 33, verse 4, we find that the Holy Spirit is involved in the creation of each man and woman. Job 33, 4 says, The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty has given me life. And, and the reason I want to point those out is because we could go to a whole number of verses to learn that the Spirit, that, that it's God that created us, that is God that made us, that it's God that, that weaves us in our mother's womb together. But there are a few verses here that make it very clear that what's actually happening there is that it's the Holy Spirit that is actively involved in those things. So the Spirit is involved right from the beginning of creation. Now what I want to do is I want to trace what the Spirit did in the lives of people after that point. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 34, 38, we find that Joseph is able to interpret dreams and make wise decisions because of the Spirit of God being upon him. It says, And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? Here is Pharaoh, the ruler of another country that doesn't know the Lord, who sees what's going on in the life of Joseph and saying, The Spirit of God is on him. There's no other explanation for the fact that he's able to interpret these dreams and for the wisdom that he has in guiding this nation. All the decisions that he's making, the Spirit of God is clearly upon him. In Exodus chapter 31, verse 3, we find that the Spirit of God comes upon Bezalel, the son of Uri, to build the temple. Sorry, not the temple, the tabernacle. So it says, And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to devise cunning works, to work in gold, in silver, in brass, and in cutting of stones, to set them, and in the carving of timber, to work all manner of craftsmanship. I, I like these verses here because we see some insight into the Spirit that is maybe different than what we usually see. Um, oftentimes when we think of the Spirit, we always just we go straight to, oh, well, He just, just does these kind of theoretical or these um, spiritual type of actions. But there's nothing really concrete to what he does. It's almost like he's this, this force that is guiding our spirit, but really there's not a whole lot else that's happening. But here, 
this man, Bezalel, and, and others also, were gifted by the Spirit to do what? To work. I mean, to build things out of metal. To build beautiful things out of metal. Um, the tabernacle is the place that would signify the presence of God among the people of Israel. So because the tabernacle was there, it was, it was showing that, that the God of heaven and earth dwelt among his people. And it, it was so important that this thing be a good representation of God, that the Spirit of God was involved in the lives of the men that made those things. It's not that sad. It's, it's kind of neat. I, I read that last line where it's in, in the carving of timber, and I thought of Steve. I thought, Steve, isn't it kind of neat? Steve, I'm talking about you. <laughs> Steve, isn't it kind of neat that the Holy Spirit of God empowered a man to work with wood? Yeah. I think that's pretty neat. If you come for the crossroads, you don't know what to do. You, you talk to yourself like the pastor said and say, well, I want you to do it this way and that way and this mm-hmm. way. And all of a sudden, yeah, this is the right way to do it. There you go. So, that is to Steve too. I, I, maybe it's probably a little bit different, although Steve is very good. So, I don't maybe he's Bezalel the second. Yeah, so I thought, when I thought of that, Jesus coming as a carpenter, it wasn't the first time that God had been involved in carpentry work. That's kind of neat. But it's just a, a different thing that the Spirit's doing here. Um, in Numbers chapter 11, we find that there are many prophets that are empowered by the Spirit to prophecy. And here is this witness going before the children of God. It's, it's God imparting His words to His people through the Holy Spirit. Um, and so throughout the Old Testament, we find prophets speaking um, God's words, but it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see this theme come up again and again, where something that is impossible because we have an infinite and holy and perfect God, and we have finite and foolish and sinful people, that, that the things that are impossible to occur because these two things are so different is made possible by the Spirit. So how do the people who are so frail and foolish and sinful understand the mind of God, the, the commandments of God, what God expects from them? How does that happen when there's such a vast difference between these two entities? And the answer is, the Holy Spirit comes and makes it possible. So the Holy Spirit empowers prophets to bring His Word to His people. And that's the only way it's possible, through the Holy Spirit. Um, Number five, we have Caleb is enabled to trust, to obey, and be courageous. In Numbers 14, verse 24, it says, But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and has followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. And what he's done right here is he's just um, demonstrated um, what kind of spirit was in the men who were afraid of the land of Canaan, of the giants, of all that they saw when they went, that they came back with this fear and this intrepidation to, to go forward and trust God. And yet Caleb comes back and he says, This land is beautiful, as God said it would be. Let's go get it. Let's go take it. If God is with us, who can be against us? I mean, this whole idea of let's go and trust God. Why did that happen? Why is Caleb so different? It's not Caleb is so much better. It's because he had a different spirit in him. right? So he had the Holy Spirit that was helping him to obey and to trust and to be courageous. 
Number six, we find that, this is very interesting, Balaam is enabled by the Spirit to prophesy good things about Israel before Balak. So Balak, the king of Moab, is, is understanding that the Israelites are beginning to take over the land of Canaan, the promised land. And as they go in, they've defeated a few kings very easily. It's very clear that there's some kind of supernatural power with them. And so um, Balak sees this, and he hires Balaam, who's kind of a known prophet in the area. He's not a, not a prophet of God. Um, he's not a, a, an Israelite. But Balaam is hired by Balak to, to prophesy against Israel. And the first time he's told to do this, he says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be a part of that. And so he sends more men, and he, he sends more promises of fame and prestige and money and all those things. And eventually, Balaam says, okay, well, I'll talk to God. Okay, God says I can come. So, so he starts to go, but then you know the whole story of the, the angel and the way. And, the, and so all of those things happen. But ultimately, what Balaam says is he says, okay, Balak, I will prophesy um, whatever God tells me to prophesy for Israel or against Israel, whatever, whatever is said. And so he goes to God hoping that God is going to say something that will make the king of Moab happy. And instead, he ends up blessing Israel. He ends up telling Israel that they will be blessed and fortunate and that that God will be with them and all, all those good things. And so the Spirit of God enables him to bless Israel even though his desire was to curse them. Now, ultimately, Balaam does a lot of bad things to Israel because Balaam convinces Balak that the way to destroy Israel is to get them involved in sexual immorality and in idolatry. And by doing this, I mean, he gave Balak a great victory over Israel. But um, Balaam was enabled by the Holy Spirit to speak words of blessing to Israel, even though he wanted to do something different. Number seven, we find that Joshua is enabled by the Spirit to lead God's people. In Numbers 27, verse 18, it says, The Lord said unto Moses, Take thee Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay thy hand upon him, and set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and give him charge in their sight. How does one man lead an entire nation into battle, into all the things that were involved in that? How does, how does one man take this people who have um, been so afraid in the past, who have failed over and over and over again, and make them the children of God who walk into the promised land and defeat it? How is that possible for one man to do that? The answer is it's not. It's absolutely not possible. And so what Moses did is he laid his hands on Joshua and um, and the Spirit was given to Joshua. And so Joshua, through the Holy Spirit, was able to lead God's people. Um, and it, I think when we, we think about this, I mean, this gives us, a, I think, a little bit of insight into how the Holy Spirit is working in the Old Testament, even when we're not thinking about him, even when he's not clearly mentioned. Because if Joshua requires the Holy Spirit to lead Israel, and Moses has just been leading Israel for 40 years, doesn't it make sense that Moses probably needed the Spirit as well? And yet, it's never really said clearly that Moses was given the Holy Spirit. 
But in Exodus 4.15, the promise is, And thou shalt speak unto him, and put words in his mouth, and I will be with thy mouth, and with his mouth, and will teach you what you shall do. So God is promising Moses that he will be with Moses, that he will help Moses know what to say, and he will help Aaron know what to say, and he'll help them know what to do. And so all along, God has been there with them, and now we find that God is with Joshua through the Spirit. It makes sense to me that God was with Moses through the Spirit as well. So all the way along, God is leading his people through his Spirit, through men. Number eight, we find that deliverance at the hand of the judges. Here, when we look to the book of Judges, we find Israel sinning. And God, over and over again, when they repent, um, raises up someone to deliver them. Can you imagine 13 times this happening? Can you imagine Israel making the exact same mistake 13 times in a row and seeing supernatural deliverance and yet going right back to their sin? I'd imagine you can imagine it because I think you've probably done it. That's pretty sad, isn't it? But what's interesting here is that um, at least four of these men are clearly given the Holy Spirit to do what they did. Othniel, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. It says, the, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he blank. And he did what he did. In each of these cases, they did what they did because the Spirit of the Lord was upon them. They were able to give deliverance from the bondage that sin had led them into by the power of the Holy Spirit. They had victory over their oppressors who would seek to keep them enslaved. The power of the Holy Spirit. They had freedom, once again, to worship God as God originally intended. That's the power of the Spirit. See, what's happening here is God doesn't want Israel to be in bondage. God never wants that for his people. God's desire is that they have victory, that they, they experience freedom. Why? So that they are free to worship him as he intends. And the fact that they're in this other country being forced or to, to work for them or even to be a part of um, the customs and the sacraments and all those things that are going on in these other nations, God never wants that for his people. He wants freedom. And so when they repent and they turn to him in faith, then he delivers them from those things so that they can once again live in the freedom that he wants to live. He wants to bless them. I think we're, we're, we're very foolish because sometimes we think that all of the good things happen out there, right? All of the freedom happens when you're not under the bondage of God. And that's just not the case. God is constantly freeing us from our sin, freeing us from bondage that wants to, to keep us enslaved. And the wonderful thing is, they did it 13 times, and he still sent Samson. Right? They did it over and over and over again, and yet God was still willing to send them someone to rescue them when they needed it. And it happens through the power of the Spirit. Number nine, we find that God gives the Spirit to the kings of Israel and then to Judah to govern and direct the nation of Israel. Um, there are many, many examples of this we could look at. We could look at the spirit being given to Saul. We could look at the spirit being taken away from Saul the king. But I think one of the verses that strikes me the loudest is at the very end of David's life, and he's, he's looking back over his time as king, and this is what he says. 
In 2 Samuel 23, verse 1, he says, Now these were the last words of David. Verse 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel, the rock of Israel, spoke to me. He that rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. So what does David has to say at the end of his reign? What does he look back and say, this is what happened while I was king? What he says is, God's word by his spirit spoke to me. And he told me that if I'm going to rule, I need to be just. I need to do right. How, how do all those things happen? It's the Holy Spirit of God working through David's life, through his reign. How does somebody who makes so many stupid decisions at times still do so many wonderful things? It's not because David had this like good side of him and a bad side of him, and it's just like depending on which side of the bed he woke up that day, he was either a great king or a terrible king, right? At times... David was living in his flesh, and he was sleeping with women that he shouldn't, and he was killing people because he slept with women. At times, David was who David is at his core, and at other times, he was in the Spirit of God, and he was being led by the Spirit of God. And when those things were happening, we have the David who kills giants. We have the David who um, frees his people, who's, who's a good and just and righteous king. We have the David who's spending his time and efforts, not in just amassing wealth for himself, but getting ready to build the temple of God. We have the David who did so many incredible things and had so many victories. But that David happened when he was in the Holy Spirit. So, um, we have the Holy Spirit guiding and directing the kings so that they can lead God's people well. And number 10, we have the Holy Spirit supernaturally protecting David. I gotta say, I think this might be the strangest story in the Bible. It's got to be up there. It's very close. Okay? In 1 Samuel 9, verse 18, I want you to picture most of this. And you'll see what I mean in a second. Um, so, 1 Samuel uh, verse chapter 19, we still have Saul as the official king, and we have him in pursuit of David. We have David on the run because he's terrified because Saul wants to kill him. But... David has already been anointed the next king of Israel, and the Spirit of God has already been taken away from Saul as the king. 1 Samuel 19, verse 18 says, So David fled and escaped and came to Samuel and Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went to... Okay, how do you say that word? Naoth? Naoth? N-A-I-O-T-H. N-A-I-O-T-H. How would any... Nail? Just nail. Okay, good. Perfect. Nail. I was going over this week, and I was like, how does it... Uh-huh. I thought about doing that. I do that often. But this... I really had no idea there. Big word, yeah. And it was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as appointed over them, the spirit of a God was upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. So you're already getting this, this picture that's kind of interesting that David comes to Samuel and Samuel um, finds a way for David to be protected from these messengers. Now, I would assume these messengers are soldiers that are likely come because they're planning to take David and they're going to take him back to Saul. Um, they probably don't just have like this message like, 
I just want you to know that Saul is not very happy with you. It's probably more than that. He's probably going to be arrested. But the messengers show up and they see um, prophecy happening. And all of a sudden, all of these men are prophesying. And I'm really curious to know what exactly they're saying. Like, are, are they prophesying who the next king of Israel is going to be? Are they prophesying the demise of Saul? I don't know. It's got to be something like that. They could be speaking in tongues. Yeah. <laughs> they could be speaking in tongues. Really, I think there is a word there that talks about language. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know either. But that's, that's interesting. Yeah, so, so they're, they're doing whatever thing that they did. And... Um, verse 21, when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers. <laughs> so the problem was with the guys. It wasn't just the power of God. It was that these guys are just weak or something. And they prophesied likewise. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. It takes Saul a little while to understand how this is going to work, right? Um, they keep sending these men, and they keep somehow being involved in prophecy. And nothing about David. So Saul realizes that if you want to do a job, well, you have to do it yourself. Verse 22, Then went he also to Ramah, and came to a great well that is in Sechu, and he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they be at Naoth in Ramah. And he went thither to Naoth in Ramah, And the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. So he's not even there yet. He's just on the journey there. And as he's like, he's going there because these guys keep arriving. And when they get there, instead of having a message or arresting, they just end up prophesying. And now Saul is on his journey there, and somewhere partway on that journey, he starts prophesying. And so now he's prophesying all the way into Naoth, and he's there because the guys keep prophesying. It's just, it's just a hilarious thing to think about it happening. So he went in hither, and the Spirit of God is upon him. He's prophesying. Verse 24, this is where it gets weird. This is the part that you stop picturing. And he stripped off his clothes also, and prophesied before Samuel in like manner, and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Wherefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? What a fool. Can you imagine such a, a crazy thing? Here, God just, this, this is the king of Israel. This is the commander of Israel's whole army that is able to go against just about any nation at this time and destroy them, wipe them out. He's not accustomed to losing battles. And all he needs to do is arrest this one little man. I mean, David might not have been little, but he's probably not as big as Saul, right? And here, he sends his messengers, and he sends his messengers, he sends his messengers, and and just this silly thing prevents them from doing anything. And now he is made to look like a fool as he walks into this village prophesying the words of God. still want to know how that happened. I'm so curious to, to see this. And then, and then he takes off his clothes and he lays down naked prophesying. Like, just the, the, anybody looking at that would see so clearly what God is doing. And what I think is interesting here is that at first, the, the Holy Spirit is given by God to Saul so that Saul could do his job better. 
But Saul rebelled. Saul was disobedient. Saul didn't do the job God wanted to do. So now the Holy Spirit is making Saul do something that he doesn't want to do. And it's making him look entirely foolish. Why? So that the next king can be protected and eventually set up so that the Holy Spirit can work through him. What God wants to do as the supernatural creator of the universe um, with foolish man who is finite and sinful is accomplished through the Holy Spirit. And it's happening over and over again. Number 11. Isaiah is given the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel. Isaiah 61 verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. And the book of Isaiah is filled with these statements that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And here Isaiah is given the ability to to preach the gospel, the good news of deliverance from sin, from bondage um, to the people of God. And sometimes even... I'm prophesying that the salvation will come to the Gentiles. All of God's plan is being worked out through the Holy Spirit. Number 12, we find throughout the Old Testament, prophets are given God's words through the Holy Spirit to speak the words of the Lord. Um, we have this clearly seen in Balaam. We already mentioned him. Um, in Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Micah, Zechariah, Joel, Haggai. Certainly, we understand that the Holy Spirit moved in all of the prophets, but these men, it's, it's just clearly seen that the Spirit of the Lord came upon them and they did this, or they said this. And what they're, what they're doing, when we look at the message of the prophets as a whole, is that they're, they're preaching that there is judgment for sin, they're warning of the consequences if they remain in their sin, and they're calling them to repentance. This is the, the message of the prophets. This is the message that the Holy Spirit gives people to be preached to the nations, that there is consequences for sin, that there is judgment, but that they've been called to repentance. So, all throughout the Old Testament, Holy Spirit does the work between God and man to ensure that God's purposes are accomplished, that God's words are spoken, and so that that somehow we can get a glimpse into the mind of God and the plan of God and the purposes of God. That's the, what the work that the Holy Spirit is doing, even the Old Testament. I say all those things because a lot of times what we do is we separate, like the Holy Spirit comes in the New Testament, but it's almost like a new character in the show. Like up to this point, maybe he was hinted at, but really he didn't do anything yet. He hasn't opened his mouth yet. And that's just not the case. Now in the Old Testament, we only find the word the Holy Spirit three times. And they're in the Psalms. But just because the Holy, the, whole, the Holy Spirit isn't given, we have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, um, my Spirit. All those statements are made over and over again because the Holy Spirit was at work in the Old Testament. It was a little bit different, but he was at work. Um, Bob Diefenbau is a theologian. He wrote a book on the Holy Spirit. And he said the Spirit of God is almost immediately introduced in the book of Genesis and he becomes a frequent focus in the writings of the prophets. The Holy Spirit had a significant role in the creation of the world and in striving with sinful men. He inspired men who revealed God to men, either in word or in work. He instructed and guided men, especially the nation of Israel. The Spirit of God instructed and guided not only the nation of Israel as a whole, but men individually. He enabled and empowered men to do 
that which was humanly impossible. He manifested not only the power of God through men, but the presence of God among men. It seems as well that the Holy Spirit was the instrument through whom the glory of God was manifested. The Holy Spirit, therefore, appears to be the agency through which God most often worked. The Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament. He is not a New Testament character. We also learn that the Holy Spirit was given by God when he deemed him necessary. What I mean here is that men did not initiate this relationship. They did not plead for or expect the Spirit of God to fall upon them. God's Spirit was given for supernatural ability, still limited ability, but supernatural ability, not as a result of super spirituality. So we could go through the Old Testament and find very godly men and women who, it never says that the Spirit of God came upon them. They just did what they did. They didn't ever do anything that required the Spirit, and God never granted them the Spirit. But it wasn't for a lack of spirituality. In fact, we often find that the Spirit is given sometimes to men who aren't very spiritual. Balaam, Saul, I mean, at different times. So we find that the Spirit is given by God when when God deems them necessary, and that people respond accordingly as the Spirit is given. There is no pattern and no formula for obtaining the Spirit's power. Number three, we learn that the Holy Spirit was given on a temporary basis to a select few. This is a, some, a characteristic of the Spirit in the Old Testament. This is something that I think it's important for us to, to realize because here we have a difference that happens in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, it's only a select few for a, a short period of time. Number four, we also learn that the Holy Spirit was necessary because God is infinite and good and mankind is finite and sinful. And we just mentioned this already, but it, the Spirit is necessary for communication between God and man. Thus, the ministry of the Spirit was necessitated by the greatness of God and by the ignorance and impotence of men. The Spirit of God is the go-between. So, that's the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. All right, let's start into the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Here we find um, the Holy Spirit, especially in the first four books of the New Testament, is mentioned very often. Okay, now we know that the Holy Spirit is, is, in, is part of Jesus' ministry. The Holy Spirit is, is always a part of the gospel going out. But in the New Testament, especially in the Gospel of John, what we find more often is that there's the promise or the anticipation of the Spirit that is discussed. So it's not that the Spirit is necessarily doing all of the work now, it's but the, that the Holy Spirit someday is going to be absolutely essential for this work that's coming. In John chapter 14 to 16, we have the promise of the Spirit given. The Spirit of truth will guide you into all truth and help you glorify Christ. The Comforter will come and He will teach you. He will help you to remember the words of Christ, to testify to others of Christ, and will bring you peace. It is better that Jesus leaves the disciples and that the Holy Spirit comes than that if He were to stay with them. These statements are very big statements, right? And so when we read about the coming of the Spirit, I've got to imagine that these disciples are like, what is the Spirit going to be like? I mean, can He guide us all in all truth? Help us understand these things? Help us to, to preach the gospel? That it's better that He's here than that you're here? Jesus, I kind of feel like I like having you here, but I believe you. But what's interesting in John 14, verse 16, there, there's this um, crazy, I can't believe it moment. 
John 14, 16 says, And I will pray to the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. This is, this is amazing. This is unprecedented. This is something that they had never expected and never understood before in the past. If, if they were to read the entire Old Testament and come to these verses, they would say this is entirely different than what we've seen. Why? Because he is going to come and he's going to abide with you forever. It's not just this temporary empowerment for a, a specific task. It's not that the Spirit's going to come and then, uh, then eventually leave and maybe come back for something else. It, this is, the Spirit is going to be abiding with you forever. And not only that, you'll know Him for He will dwell in you. He, he's going to dwell with you and in you. I mean, in the Old Testament, I know that I've heard people make a very clear distinction between the Spirit coming upon people and the Spirit being in people and that, that pe- Spirit never came in people until the New Testament. I'm not really sure that that distinction is necessary. Um, but... I think the point here is that Jesus is promising to his followers, all those that know Christ as Savior and and are following him, that it's not just for those select few at certain times for limited power, that this is the Holy Spirit coming in them permanently. That's nothing like that they've seen before. Certainly not a promise to all those who are following him. That's insane. And so all these things, all these promises, it's not just like, well... There's going to be one person, one of you guys, you know, just wait for the time. One of you is going to have a time where you're going to be taught all things. You're going to understand um, some of the words of God. Yeah, and some, maybe another one of you at some point will testify. And, and maybe another one of you at some point will um, do, have this supernatural peace or this ability to glorify Christ in, in an incredible way. It's not that just these select few at different times. It's all of them forever. That's, that's incredible. Promise of Spirit is given. Then we find the waiting for the Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the, Spirit, promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. It's interesting that Jesus here calls it the promise of the Father. And yet, he's always been the one promising the Holy Spirit. It is the promise of the Father. And the Father, the Spirit of God will come to them, and their job at this point is just to wait. Here the disciples are motivated. They've seen the risen Christ. They now believe that he is all that he said he was. They know that he has conquered death. Um, They're about to see him raise up to heaven they have every reason to go out and tell the world about his coming. And yet God says, you got to wait. Jesus says, you got to wait for the Spirit. Because what you do by yourself, it's vain, it's meaningless. Don't attempt to go out and do my work without my Spirit. That's what he's saying. I don't care how much you want to. I don't care what kind of good plan you have. You need the Holy Spirit of God in order to accomplish the work of God. And so we'll, we'll stop our lesson there and pick it up when we left off next week. All right?